Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The Bigger Picture. Going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose, and I'm delighted to say I'm joined today for The Bigger Picture by Tim Evans, who's Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim, we have to start with the story of the day, the week, the month, really, which is, which is Afghanistan. How, how do we want to look at it? Well, it is, of course, grim, and it is rare uh, that I really come across a news story uh, that, that is so thoroughly depressing. and. And, and has really got to me. I mean, uh, it's very rare, as you know, that I would ever, you know, feel depressed in any way. But No, I know you have t- said time after time, and I remember the last time we spoke, you are ever the optimist, you said. Exactly. But, but given the images um, uh, coming from Kabul, and particularly Kabul Airport in recent days, um, I think it has been um, the level of suffering, the level of pain, um, has just been at times unbearable, and uh, you know, heart goes out to to quite frankly everyone involved in that in that evacuation. Um, uh, but what, what should our reflections be? Well, I think the first thing is that um, that it, it, it's with a, a degree of irony that I, I watched in recent days, or I rewatched um, the films uh, relating to the Soviet Union leaving Afghanistan right at the end of the 1980s. And I have to say, um, the Soviet withdrawal was much more ordered um, and and seemingly well organized. I, I guess I don't have many links with Afghanistan, although for some years in the late 1980s, um, I befriended, I became quite close for a time to uh, a gentleman who had been <laughs> My life is so bizarre, but had been for a time the the finance minister of Afghanistan, and we were um, on a course together. And I discovered, I mean, I was doing my masters, uh, uh, just about to start my PhD at London School of Economics, and this gentleman had studied at LSE, and so we spent quite some time discussing the the um, the, the sociologist Max Weber. He was a very well-educated, very charming man. He told me a lot. He taught me a lot about Afghanistan, its culture, its people, its history. Um, and, and, and what became so very difficult for him was, of course, then the arrival of the communists and this intervention of, of an outside power. Uh, and particularly for Afghanistan, the Soviet Union being a secular force, um, an irreligious, you know, secular force um, uh, that, that tried, in effect, to colonize the country. But you contrast um uh the uh the organized withdrawal of the soviet union around 1989 to the chaos that we've seen and it's very very sad um of course the negotiations between uh the taliban and uh the united states have taken place in doha uh in qatar and i think that often in these international negotiations 
what goes on outside the negotiating room is as important as the as what goes on in that, on the inside and what is concluded. And I'll, and I'll lift the veil a little bit here and say that one of the things that's clearly happened to the Taliban in the many years that that leadership have been based in Doha and indeed have been talking to the US is that the leadership have themselves changed. Um, 10 or 20 years ago, um, that leadership would not have ever watched television or, or used lots of the technology that we all use today, things like mobile phones. Um, um, but they and the Taliban um, have clearly evolved in that they have engaged with this technology. Whenever you see the images of the Taliban now, they're not just toting their guns and their uh, grenade launchers and their AK-47s, but they're also um, using mobile phones and they're often looking at screens. So I wouldn't want to um, gloss over the fact that the Taliban, it's not that they're going to behave uh, in a different way, but they have, even if they don't realise it, become more embroiled in the trappings of modernity. Mm. And, 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 and the other big trend in Afghanistan is, of course, this huge shift to urbanisation. Um, Kabul is a completely different city, not, not just by design, but by scale from, 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 from what it was 20 years. And a huge proportion of the Afghan population are now uh, educated. They live in uh, urban areas, and, and a huge proportion of the country's population have lived in Kabul. And often the division between the urban with the economy that it brings, uh, the psychology, the sort of cosmopolitanism and the liberalism that often um, uh, uh, you know, urban populations uh, engender, um, that I think is a, a strong shift. One of the things that was perhaps overlooked by many people when the Berlin Wall collapsed, particularly in Central and Eastern Europe, was um, the gulf between those urban areas, be it Prague or Warsaw or Krakow or Bratislava or wherever, and the 50 or 60 kilometers outside the city uh, with an, an effectively farming and agrarian population mm. that looked somewhat akin to the sort of world in which my parents grew up in the 1930s. People were still using horses, carts, um, scythes, and, and, you know, I remember commenting to a colleague in Czechoslovakia at the time, goodness, when I leave Bratislava, when I leave Prague, um, within 30 minutes, I'm going back 80 or 90 years. And, and, and I think that there are parts of Afghanistan that have been propelled forward many decades in a very short period of time, and that that many elements of the Taliban are a lot less agrarian and a lot less rural than they were 20 years ago. So where this is building me up to, it too is whilst no doubt the Taliban will be brutal and warlordery, uh, I would imagine, will break out across many parts of the country, um, I don't think that we should just assume that the Taliban are unchanged, that Afghanistan is unchanged, or that this is going to be simply a walkover um, for 
for their forms of brutality. Um, we're already seeing resistance um, in the northeast of the country, um, and one wonders where this will go. To use an Americanism, I do not fall into the trap of just thinking it's a slam dunk and that the future is inevitable. I think um, these things can turn out to be uh, less predictable than many so-called experts, experts assume. One of the things I suppose that surprised everybody was the utter chaos. You've already said that compared to the Soviet withdrawal, um, that was much better ordered. I mean, everybody knew that the Americans were going to withdraw. Why was it so chaotic in the end? Um, you know, we expect the military to be very well planned for these sort of things. Yes, um, I think it is because um, the, uh, the 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 Russians um, uh, pulled out uh, quite rapidly. They, but part of their agreement um, uh, with the then Mujahideen mm. uh, was not just they would pull out. But they part of their agreement was that the the nature by which or the, the the battle order, as it were, in which they would pull out. And I, I'm not convinced. I simply don't know um, if part of the agreement that was negotiated between the US and the Taliban in in um, in uh, in Doha included the withdrawal. Donald Trump was always, of course, famed for telling us that he was a brilliant deal maker, mm. uh, but. As anyone knows, often with deals, there are headlines and then there's small print. And I'm not convinced that um, that Donald Trump included in the small print or or, or assured um, that, you know, uh, detail around the transition in a way that I think the Russians did in 1989. And in there lies a tale. Mm. Um, everybody in the UK has been pointing a finger at Joe Biden and saying it's all down to him and parliament has basically been sort of wagging its finger at him um but you send me reading each week and you sent me a piece by evans admiral evans pritchard saying that history might actually vindicate biden over afghanistan which i thought was quite interesting because it was almost the only piece i've seen so far that says anything like that at all everybody else has just been saying it, you know, it's all down to this one man um, yeah. who, who just was incompetent well, well i include that i included that article because he starts uh, the piece by saying, I don't necessarily believe in what I'm going to write, mm. but for the sake of discourse and, and good argumentation, because no one else has written the logic, yeah. I'm going to write it. So it was heavily um, caveated. Um, but um, yes, he sort of reminds us, doesn't he, that when the US pulled out of Vietnam in 1975, remember, that was a period where the US and, and the West was dogged by uh, the oil uh, crisis um, and and also high levels of inflation. Um, this was a period in the mid seventies when Britain was shortly to go off to the International Monetary Fund because in effect it became insolvent. There were an awful lot of problems, but it appeared that Vietnam was just not a military catastrophe. That sort of U.S. and Western hegemony uh, in some way had been undermined. Yet what happened? Well, at the end of the decade. Uh, you saw the rise of Margaret Thatcher in, in the US in the very early 80s, the rise of Ronald Reagan, the US and NATO starting uh, to increase expenditure on its weapons systems. Um, uh, the information society was born, personal computers, um, financial services took off, 
you know, wealth was created, um, arguably, um, and, um, and, um, and, and by the end of the 80s, it wasn't US hegemony that had collapsed, actually, it was the Soviet bloc that was in trouble. Um, and, and really, you know, by uh, Ambrose Evans Pritchard, it makes a similar case. And, and, and if you want to distill what he wrote, he basically says that, that whatever sort of disaster this might be for NATO uh, and the US, and however much short-term pain, um, we cannot predict uh, what this will lead to. Um, will it really aid the Chinese project um, of Belt and Road? Or actually, um, will this be deeply problematic for the Chinese? To what extent will the Taliban um, intellectually threaten and therefore threaten the security of the other stands to their north uh, and potentially, you know, um, uh, and beagle some of their um, uh, outreach into the Caucasus and, you know, go on causing uh, Russia problems? Um, you know, what level of, what sort of numbers of refugee are we going to see pour across the Afghan border into Iran? What pressures is that going to put Tehran under? The point that um, uh, Ambrose Evans Pritchard is making is that there are so many complex parts to this Swiss watch movement um, that you only need, you know, a little bit of dirt in one flywheel and things will, you know, springs will fly out or go in unpredictable directions. Um, and he's sort of saying that it's that unpredictability that Biden is tapping into, that he's causing, um, you know, an inflection point, a pivot point that's throwing some cards up in the air. And you can sort of understand it, can't you? Because the US uh, has been spending an ocean of money each year in Afghanistan, trillions of US dollars uh, have been spent on the project. And for all the misgivings we may all have about the way the US has led this pullout and negotiated it, um, uh, it, it may be that, uh, that others in the region, like Russia, China, and Iran, find this, it turns out to be problematic for them. Yes. Rudyard Kipling's great game goes on, um, and, that, and, that, uh, and that it might be a time for the West and for NATO to regroup, reflect, and then move forward in the 2030s in unexpected ways. Um, right. you know. Thank you, Tim. Okay, time for us to change topic. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Big... This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Your picture on Chair Radio, where I'm in conversation with Tim Evans, Professor on Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Uh, Tim, where do we go for our second uh, topic? Well, just as we've uh, visited Afghanistan, I think we have to visit um, our shops and the wider supply chain in our economy, because whether you're doing DIY at home or your, you know, your food shop or whatever, uh, I think we're all starting to notice 
um, that there are problems with the supply chain. This is not just the odd gap or something that's not available in a supermarket. Um, it's not just uh, increasingly exorbitant prices, uh, you know, vis-a-vis -vis building materials, whether it's steel or wood, but it's bleeding out. There are problems that are bleeding out into major high street brands. So we're reading, you know, in some of the press, no milkshakes at McDonald's uh, or problems with chicken at Nando's or M&S um, hasn't got pastries. And of course, the, 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 the people who were hostile to Brexit are saying it's Brexit. Um, road hauliers are saying it's a lack of drivers. Um, uh, and lots of people are um, putting their hat into the ring uh, to make all kinds of judgments. And, and, and I'm quite interested in, in something quite old fashioned, which is called ground truth. So I'm quite interested in what is actually going on. And the first thing is um, that, that there is no simple answer. Um, I think that as central banks have printed lots of money um, and governments have been going on spending sprees um, with what we like to call in Britain, um, shovel ready projects, uh, and I'm thinking particularly the vast sums of money um, that, that, that Biden is spending on the US economy and on things like infrastructure. When you have lots and lots of different governments around the world that are starting to um, encourage shovel-ready projects and, and spend money on infrastructure, do not be surprised if uh, the cost of things like steel and wood uh, and cement and all the sort of raw ingredients start to, to, to rise. Um, um, so that's one thing. Secondly, um, clearly lots and lots of people who were lorry drivers in this country um, have gone back uh, to countries like Poland and Romania and Bulgaria. Uh, but they didn't just go back um, uh, because of Brexit. They, I think many of them uh, went back uh, because of the pandemic. Um, I have lots of friends from Eastern Europe, and I know quite a number who went back to Bulgaria uh, and to Poland um, and to Slovakia because as the pandemic was hitting, they wanted to be with their families. Most of them wanted to look after older parents. And so it's been clearly uh, 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 um, uh, going back of of tens and tens of thousands of lorry drivers uh, to east, particularly to Eastern and Central Europe. Um, another thing that's happened is that the, the, the British Treasury, <coughs> in their infinite wisdom, have clearly taken this time to adjust the, um, the, the tax regulations for those heavy goods drivers uh, uh, who were traditionally uh, self-employed and had the benefits of, of what we now call a tax loophole um, around something technical and complex called, um, I think it's IR35. Um, and this has meant that a lot of lorry drivers have found that they're, they're paying much more tax. And so some of them um, have decided clearly that it's no longer to their benefit or that this might be the moment to retire. And I think another factor uh, is that many young people uh, go to uh, uh, universities now in a way that they didn't 20 years ago. 
And that actually one of the mistakes we've made is we do not understand, we do not think of um, HGV driving as quite a specialized skill. Um, it is not just that uh, they're driving um, an enormous vehicle. There's an awful lot about logistics that have to be learned. Um, there's an awful lot of skill in keeping you know, trucks going, um, um, making sure they get to the right place at the right time, that they're loaded in the correct way, that you're working with people in other parts of the logistics chain. Um, you know, there, there are an awful lot of issues here. And um, because at the moment they're not regard, regarded, therefore, as being highly skilled, um, um, uh, they don't reap the rewards or have some of the benefits um, that, that other so-called highly skilled uh, employees or workers do. So it, it's a pretty mixed bag. It, it is partly to do, I think, um, with this global drive to support economies and to use vast resources and infrastructure. It's to do with tax regulations. It's to do with uh, many people going back to be with their families for pandemic. There are some connections clearly with Brexit, but there is no one simple thing. Yes. Um, you Again, as with all the things you talk about, certainly some reading beforehand, and many of those things cannot be changed in the short term. But the ability uh, to allow um, lorry drivers to be classed as skilled workers, which means they can get visas to actually work here, that can change. I mean, um, one of the pieces I've read, Richard Walker, who's the managing director of Iceland, said he thinks it's criminal that you can't get drivers eligible visas, but you can have visiting ballerinas and concert pianists. Now, many people would argue we do want those as well. But clearly, um, when you've actually got a problem bringing food to supermarket shelves, um, that is something that needs looking at very quickly. Do you get an impression that the government is likely to actually um, assuage the situation by changing that and making lorry drivers skilled workers? Well, just as entrepreneurs and capitalists are, are, are greedy, profit-motivated motiv creatures, so let's never forget in a democracy, uh, politicians are vote-hungry creatures. Mm. They rapaciously seek um, good ratings and opinion polls, and they like to win elections. So, yes, I do think that minds will be focused quickly on this and policy has changed. And you've mentioned uh, the piece around um, uh, the classification of skilled workers. I also think that IR35 could be reformed and that the Treasury could make sure um, that there are indeed uh, financial incentives uh, for, 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 for people to go into uh, HGV driving. Um, I mean, one of the interesting things around this seems to be that there are, there are major road haulage brands out there who are paying some of their highly skilled drivers uh, 13 or 14 pounds a year ago, but now, uh, per, per hour, mm. but now um, um, there are other reports that, 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 that these monies are nudging 17 or indeed 18 pounds an hour. Mm. Um, let's not forget lots of these drivers do long, long hours. Um, although their hours are ultimately regulated, um, they often find themselves stuck in traffic, and and you know it is it is not unusual for an HGV driver uh, to do something around the seventy five hour a week mark. Now they can earn 
really good money for that, you know, um, uh, £1,500 or more, um, and, and with rising, <laughs> with, with, you know, with, um, with hourly rates going up almost by the month, you know, HGV drivers can, can easily earn £1,500 a month if they put in the hours. Um, and, and I think that's likely to grow. Because, of course, at the end of the day, the economics of this are simple. If, 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 if the demand is there, eventually a market yes. will encourage supply. And, and indeed, you get a supermarket boss complaining. But, of course, I've seen another article saying one of the reasons this is a problem is because supermarkets have been driving down prices for the years. People have not been able to actually pay lorry drivers reasonable amount. The haulier firms are on wafer-thin margins. And that the supermarkets themselves are in some way to blame. Exactly. And I think that's reality. And of course, supermarkets have done uh, particularly well over the last two years. Their results have been astonishing. Um, but they've lost their, you know, they haven't kept their eye on the ball. Mm. And, um, and, and so I think what, what will happen, providing the British government moves, providing uh, the Treasury also puts uh, those incentives in place, um, I think that you'll find um, that... Um, the market is going to force everyone in the broader supply chain to recognize the valuable contribution that these skilled workers make. I mean, let's be clear, electricians, plumbers, many other um, you know, skilled parts of the workforce have done pretty well over the last 10 or 20 years. But it's obvious that, that, that the remuneration has not kept place um, in, the, in, 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 in the world of road haulage. And I'm afraid one of the beauties about the market is that not only does it mediate the desires of suppliers with the subjective desires of millions of economic agents that no one central authority can know, but it uses the language of price to inform and educate. And I think we're all, with some of the gaps in the supply chain, getting a rude and swift awakening. What will happen is um, that if the government does its job, um, um, those supermarkets and, and many other businesses will have to pay, uh, or they were going to have to discover uh, a rate of pay uh, that will entice and incentivize people to come in to do those jobs. Uh, it could be, it could be that only when you're paying 19, 20, 21, 22 pounds per hour to do what is quite a technical and skilled and difficult job that involves a lot of hard work, often getting up early and long hours, mm. that the market will clear the problem. Yes. I think we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna see some inflation in this area. Well, I was about to say this is gonna be another inflationary pressure, something we've talked about quite a bit already, and I know that we'll continue to do so. But uh, let us switch to our final topic. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Chair Radio, where I'm talking to Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy. Tim, we have a, a final topic to turn to. Yeah, really, really good piece by uh, Larry Elliott, who's not only a good friend of Middlesex University, um, he's attended um, things we've done, but also he is The Guardian's um, uh, uh, economic uh, correspondent. And he is one of those journalists who is really quirky. 
you don't you don't often know where he's going to come from on a particular issue. One of the things I really like about Larry Elliott is that he is unpredictable, and um, and that just when you think you've got the measure of where he's coming from in his economic analysis, he comes at you from a different direction. Mm. Quite frankly, more power to his elbow. But he he, he basically is making the case that um, the the problems we're seeing um, in the economy today. Um, uh, whether it's worries about inflation or signs, for example, the US economy is slowing down or the, the pace of recovery, you know, uh, is, is sort of starting to flatten out in places like uh, the UK, Germany, China. Um, his big takeaway um, is that we have never really uh, moved away from or, 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 or spun away from the orbit of uh, the financial crisis of 2008. Um, I, I, I was recently with a politician who um, said that he thought that the financial crisis was long behind us. And I was surprised by that, um, given that rather like Larry Elliott, um, I don't think we've ever got to grips with a lot of the underlying institutional and architectural problems relating to that crisis. You know, you only have to look at the European Central Bank and many others to see uh, the amount of QE that is still being used and pumped out to realize that. But the point he makes is that, you know, there, when you were dealing with the, the great Wall Street crash of, of 1929, you know, eventually the New Deal and indeed the Second World War sort of put pay, put pay to that era and, and simply a new post-war era was 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 um, launched, um, and it was one of youth culture, new technology, you know, and more consumer goods in that world of nineteen fifties and sixties beyond. And so he makes this case that we're sort of still stuck in a period of crisis with huge debt, debt, um, 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 with uncertainty, um, and 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 the. And, and, and ever greater concerns around inflation, uh, productivity and growth. So he's basically making the case that, um, that we have to think more clearly about how to get out of the orbit of, of this phase of economic history. And being Larry, he, he takes a slightly you know, unusual turn. He says that yes, we should embrace, embrace new technology, but we should also ensure that people have the benefits, the welfare, to enable them to transition to that new technology, um, that, um, that we should focus more on giving people the skills and the education uh, to shift to these new high growth industries. Um, uh, and that basically, uh, we have to think in more audacious ways. He is not, let me say, he is not someone who is necessarily a fan of QE uh, or, or, or the, you know, the traditional <laughs> Keynesian approach of spending more. You know, he notices in this piece um, that, that discipline was imposed by the gold standard on central banks, and therefore he's implicitly pointing out the indiscipline that they are enjoying today. Um, but he's sort of getting altitude above this, and he's saying, you know, the 19th century is a period of technological innovation, the telephone, uh, moving pictures and vehicles powered by combustion engines followed in the 20th century. 
what are the great drivers that we can pick up on now? And how can we move away from this never ending crisis, you know, this sluggishness, this age of austerity, this mm. age of funny money? How can we move beyond it? How can we draw the veil on this period and, and move to something more sustainable and more meaningful and more beneficial? And I thought it was a really, really good piece. It will upset an awful lot of mainstream thinkers on the left and the right. And I like people who do that, Simon. <laughs> Tim, thank you very much indeed. I've been in conversation with Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim will be joining me again, I hope, in a fortnight's time. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.